Peace be upon you. So the other week I just found out that a uh, close friend of mine from high school uh, passed. And it's crazy because we were really close and they just moved to uh, the States. And we were talking the other week and they sent us a postcard. And I was wondering why it didn't come in the mail. And then the last Monday I got the postcard and I texted them to let them know. And I didn't hear back. And um, then just this uh, week... I hear that they uh, had an accident and uh, they lost their life. And the natural tendency when losing someone is to think that, you know, maybe you could have done something different. Maybe if you just uh, called them at the right time, you could have avoided this. And this is a, uh, a fallacy that as uh, believers in the Quran, we have to come to terms with that God is the one who controls life and death. God is the one who controls everything. The example in the Quran in Surah 3 verse 154 it tells us that people at the time of the prophet when they had to go to battle that the ones who stayed behind or the ones who were reluctant they believed that if you know the the individuals who died during the battle if they only stayed home they could have survived and god corrects them and he says had you stayed in your homes those destined to be killed would have crawled into their deathbeds and in the following verse god tells us that um this is a test for all the people that we're going to lose individuals in our lives. And in 3156 it reads, God renders this a source of grief in their hearts. God controls life and death. God is seer of everything you do. Someone who doesn't believe in the hereafter, someone who's only fixated on this life, death is going to be an incredibly tough test for them. All of us, we're going to lose people we love in this world. And the question is, how do we react to this? If we are beating ourselves up thinking, you know, I could have done something different if I only did this or that, the person could have survived. It's just showing that we don't believe in God's system. When God tells us he controls life and death, when God tells us that if these people didn't die in battle, they would have been crawling into their deathbeds. If we think we could have changed the situation, then we're only fooling ourselves. In Surah 16 verse 1, God says that everything's already written down. Don't rush it. In Surah 57 verse 22, God says that everything was already written down even before the creation, that this is easy for God to do. So this world, we're here to see how we react to these situations. Life and death is a fact of this world. And as submitters, the criteria of when we know we truly submitted to God is that we never fear and we never grieve. Yeah, we might miss the person because we have to wait to, to, to see them again, God willing, in heaven. Um, but we realize that this is God's system. And as submitters, we submit to whatever God wills. And one of the best examples, the best stories in the Quran to show just how much in control God is and that everything that happens, happens for a good reason, is the story of Moses and his teacher. And this is kind of an obscure story in the Quran. And it's in Surah 18, and it's in regards to Moses. And it's not clear at what point in Moses' life this is, but it's at a point where he's clearly a believer. And he wanted to understand God's system. And God appointed him a teacher and told him where to go, in essence, to meet this teacher. And when he meets this individual, it's not clear who this person is. Is he a human, an angel? And there's all kinds of speculation. You can make arguments to why, uh, you know, this wasn't just a human being, but this was a, an angel. But it's irrespective. It doesn't matter. And the first response when Moses goes to this teacher and asks if he can join him, the response is, how can you stand that which you do not comprehend? And the teacher is warning Moses 
one of the prophets of God, one of the uh, honorable messengers of God, that he can't stand to be with this individual because what he's going to see, he's not going to comprehend, and this is going to frustrate him and get him upset and lose in submission. But nevertheless, he allows Moses to come, come with him. And the actions that this individual does seems erratic, seems unjust, seems crazy. So first they get onto a, a shipping vessel and they bore a hole in it. And Moses objects to this. He says, did you bore a hole in it so you can, you know, in essence, uh, ruin the boat for these individuals? And the teacher warns him, reminds him, says, hey, I told you, you can't stand to be with me. And uh, Moses apologizes. And then they go on and they see a young boy and this individual kills him. And he says, how could you kill someone innocent who's done nothing wrong? And again, the teacher tells him, how can you stand that which you do not comprehend? He says, you can't stand to bear to be with me. And they continue on and Moses uh, profusely apologizes until they go to a town that's completely uh, inhospitable to them. They're asking for food and everyone's just giving them a cold shoulder. And then they see a wall that's about to crumble and this individual patches the wall. And Moses just reluctant, you know, says, makes a comment that, oh, you could have asked the wage for that. And it's at this point that the teacher says, okay, we have to part ways. You know, Moses warned him, said, you won't see any more excuses from me, that he's going to submit, he's going to understand and trust in God's system. But he lost his patience. He lost his cool. He couldn't stand that which he could not comprehend. But in return, the teacher explained to Moses the reason for each one of these criteria. He said that the vessel that belonged to those poor fishermen, that there was a king confiscating all the boats uh, for their navy, and that he wanted to render it defective so when the king comes, they won't take this only source of livelihood for these fishermen. And the second reason he says he killed the boy, he says, yeah, it was a young boy, but he was going to grow up and be a tyrant and give his parents, who were good believers, a lot of hardship, and that God willed to replace that boy with one who's going to be obedient and righteous. And in regards to the wall, he said that there was a treasure underneath that wall that was buried by a father before he lost his life that was meant for his two uh, orphan children. And if the wall fell prematurely, then the people of that town, seeing how nasty and um, uh, self-absorbed they were, uh, they would have confiscated these treasures before the orphans grew of age where they could claim it for themselves, their treasure. And then from there, they part company. But there's so much wisdom in this short story about how God's system works. We are so fixated on understanding what's happening behind the scenes, why certain events take place, why did this come to be. If we trust in God wholeheartedly and we understand that God is doing absolutely everything, we would never complain, we would never grieve, we would never fear because we would have absolute trust in God. In a Quran study the other day, we were uh, reading about Moses, and an interesting parallel came to be. You know, Moses' mother feared for his life and put him into a basket and threw him into the river. Now, no one is going to question the motives of the mother. Was this a good thing to do? Obviously, she was inspired by God, and she carried out the action because she loved her child. But if you just saw this in isolation, and you just saw Moses' mother not knowing the reason, but taking a baby, putting it into a basket and throwing it into the river, you'd say this person's crazy. This person's demented. What are they doing to this child? And it wouldn't make any sense to you. 
But because God has bestowed upon us the reasoning, the motivation, what was going on behind the scenes, we see this as a courageous act. In comparison, you take Joseph, whose brothers threw him into the well and left him for dead. And needless to say, this was an unrighteous act. It was unjust. But in the hindsight, was this a good thing for Joseph or not? It's because of this one act that Joseph, uh, Joseph was exalted, reached a state of prominence, was becoming the treasurer of all of Egypt, was able to bring the entire children of Israel out of famine because of this act. And if you get fixated on the intention of the individuals to why they did this and that, it's, you realize it's irrelevant. If you trust in God, irrespective if someone throws you in the river for harm or for good, you know that the outcome is in God's control. It doesn't matter about the intention of the person. It doesn't matter what their motivations was because God is the one who holds all the cards. There's an example in the Quran in regards to bad language. And in 4148 it reads, God does not like the utterance of bad language unless one is treated with gross injustice. God is here or knower. And some people interpret this to mean that, okay, it's okay to swear. It's okay to use bad language. But again, it depends on your perspective. If your perspective is at the moment, could there be injustice? Then yes, you can use bad language. But if you trust in God and you know that, again, God isn't thinking in cross-sectional bites. God is seeing the end picture in mind. You would realize that there is never an ounce of injustice that takes place in this world. That anything that happens to us, irrespective of how it looks from the outside observer, good or bad, we know that if we trust in God, we believe in God, it's ultimately going to be for our good. This is similar to the example of uh, um, intoxication. God tells us in the Quran that, O oh, you who believe, this is Surah 4 verse 43, says, O oh, you who believe, do not observe the contact per Salat while intoxicated, so you know what you are saying. And some people, again, they interpret this that, yeah, okay, I can drink as long as I'm not doing my contact prayer. But what they fail to notice is that this is for someone who might already have problems with alcohol, who might already have substance abuse issues that they have to overcome. And it's too much for them to just go cold turkey, perform all five contact prayers, and God is creating a channel for them to be able to accept submission. But we see in Surah 5 verse 9, it says, O you who believe intoxicants and gambling and the altars of idols and the games of chance are the abominations of the devil. You shall avoid them that you may succeed. God uses the strongest injunction for us to refrain from such actions as intoxicants, alcohol, by saying we should avoid them. Not only should we not use them, we shouldn't even be in vicinity of them. This is the same language that God told Adam and Eve in regards to the tree. It didn't say don't eat from this tree in the Quran. It says you shall avoid this tree because we don't even want to be in vicinity. So if someone believes after reading these verses, after understanding the Quran, that they can still consume alcohol, they can still consume intoxicants, as long as they're not doing their salat, they're fooling themselves. Similarly, if someone thinks that they can use bad language, again, when the submission is weak, when we first come to the religion, there's things we have to polish. One of that is our anger, our temper, our impatience. But as we grow in submission, as we trust in God and we realize that every single thing that happens in this world, that God is ultimately in control, then we would never object. We would never have to get angry to use bad language. This is a pitfall, a shortcoming of us humans. But just like Moses, we have to overcome this. 
right? When Moses saw this teacher doing these acts without the understanding, without the comprehension, it frustrated him. It made him an objector. It got him upset. But once it was revealed to him, I guarantee it healed his heart. And God tells us that the Quran brings mercy and healing for those who observe it. Why? It's because it's letting us know that God is doing everything, that God is in control. And if, again, we get fixated on the intents of the individual, what the actions were, we're going to miss the bigger picture. Just like if you looked at Joseph's brothers who threw him into the well, and you get fixated on why would they do that? They're such terrible people. You forget that it doesn't matter. God is in control. Just like when God inspired Moses' mother to put him in a basket and throw him into the river. Both family members doing the same act. One was done for righteousness, one was done for wickedness. But in either situation, it was for both Joseph's and Moses' good. This is the profoundness of God. You think of the plan, the scheme that God cooked up in regards to Moses. Here's Pharaoh killing the firstborn of all the children of Israel, trying to stop a potential uprising of any sort by implementing the worst persecution. And what does God do? God takes Moses and has Pharaoh's wife find him and raise him. And into the lion's den is where Moses was uh, taught, where he grew up, where he learned, where he was uh, uh, taken care of. And by all people, even his own mother, without one, because um, he was a child and he refused to take milk from any of the nursing mothers. And it was Moses' sister who told him, I knew of a mom who could take care of him. And he accepted the milk from his own mother. And you think a child who feeds probably every hour or so, that within that time period of when she put him into the basket and put him into the river, she was reunited with him. But then take that in contrast with Jacob, Joseph's father. Jacob lost Joseph as a boy, a child, and wasn't reunited with him until he was an old man, that Joseph was a full adult to the point that he was unrecognizable by his own brothers. And you say in one, you would say, is this injustice? No, because it was because of this act that Joseph was able to save not only his father, but his entire family from potential starvation because he foresaw the famine that was taking place and he was able to stock up grain for these individuals by God's leave. So everything that happens is in God's control. God tells us in 2.281, says, Beware of the day when you are returned to God and every soul is paid for everything it had done without the least injustice. So if we believe in the hereafter, if we believe that everyone is going to be held to account, we would never fear any injustice in this world because irrespective if someone does us wrong, if someone's acting unrighteously or righteously even at that, irrespective they get paid in full, if not in this world, then definitely in the hereafter. And if our perspective is long enough, we would never fear any injustice. You think, was it injustice that Joseph was thrown into prison? Was that injustice? Of course. But you think in regards to the bigger picture, irrespective, he was meant to go there. That's where his training need to take place because that's where he was going to get promoted to become the treasure of Egypt. And similarly, when he told the truth, and they said, oh, if his garment's torn from the front, then he's innocent. <laughs> or uh, no, it's, I take that back. If his garment's torn from the front, then he's guilty. If it's torn from the back, then he's innocent. Some silly kind of reasoning was what allowed him to stay outside of prison. But when the time was right, irrespective if they schemed or not, God is the one who allowed him to go to prison. 
because this is where his training needs to take place. This is where his schooling needs to take place because God sees things way beyond these cross-sectional aspects. People, they get so fixated to think, how could Joseph have been in prison? Can you imagine the, the, the uproar if you knew that this was a righteous individual who's thrown in prison? But again, if you trust in God, you realize that even prison can be designed for that individual's good, that God can make someone come out better than they were before. In 440, it reads, God does not inflict the Adam's weight of injustice. On the contrary, he multiplies the reward manifold for the righteous work and grants for him a great recompense. If we believe in God, if we believe God is doing everything, we would never fear injustice. One of God's name is omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing. Everything is in God's control. In Surah 72 verse 13 says, When we heard the guidance, we believed herein. Anyone who believes in his Lord will never fear any injustice nor any affliction. Fear, grief, this is what it shows when we're stepping out of God's kingdom. If we trust in God wholeheartedly, if we submit to God 100%, if we're completely devoted to God, we would never fear any injustice. Irrespective of how people treat us, what the the so-called motives of the individuals are, or how things play out, if we put our entire trust in God, we never fear. Because God is the one who holds all the cards. Think of the story of the coyote and the roadrunner. And in every scheme, the road and the coyote does all these crazy uh, tactics to try to catch the roadrunner so he can eat him. But why is it that he never catches him? It's because the creator of that show dictates the terms. Irrespective of how uh, clever, how conniving the coyote is, Unless the creator dictates that he's going to get the the roadrunner, it's never going to happen. In Surah 13, verse 42, it reads, Others before them have schemed, but to God belongs the ultimate scheming. He knows what everyone is doing. The disbelievers will find out who the ultimate winners are. God is telling us he's in full control. There's nothing we need to ever worry about, to fear about, to grieve about, because God has bestowed us everything we need in order to be successful. All we have to do is trust in God. We have to strive. We have to be steadfast. We have to uphold God's commandments. If we do our part, God guarantees he will do his part. The depths of God's control is perfectly depicted in Surah 10, verse 61. It says, you do not get into any situation, nor do you recite any Quran, nor do you do anything without us being witnesses thereof as you do it. Not even an atom's weight is out of your Lord's control, be it in the heavens or the earth, nor is there anything smaller than an atom or larger that is not recorded in a profound record. So it's telling us God is doing everything. Not an atom is, Adam's weight is out of his control. Be it smaller or larger, God is in full control. And it continues and it tells us the formula for perfect happiness. It says, absolutely, God's allies have nothing to fear, nor will they grieve. They are those who believe and lead a righteous life. For them, joy and happiness in this world as well as in the hereafter. This is God's unchangeable law. Such is the greatest triumph. So if you're ever thinking that perhaps, you know, you're going to lose your patience, lose your cool, uh, you're uh, having ill thoughts about the situation at hand, know that this is all for our own good. If we trust in God, if we do God's commandments, if we uphold God's message, we have nothing to fear, nor will we grieve. This is God's promise. And God never breaks his promise. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.